you know, I often am speaking to families who say, Corey, like I'm constantly yelling at my child or I'm nagging my child when they don't listen to me, or I'm bribing and negotiating with a three-year-old. Like what am I doing? Right. And a lot of that is us as parents just reacting to our kids based on what we know from the way we were parented. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and in today's episode, we have Corey Stern. Corey is the founder of the Empowered Parenting Program, which focuses on coaching parents through the different ages and stages of development so that you can parent with less of the day-to-day stress and overwhelm. Corey is a child behavioral specialist and mother of two. She's merged her background in positive parenting, education, and child development with a master's degree in child study and education. Join us as we learn how to talk to our kids, teach resilience, become an executive problem solver, know the difference between responsive and reactive parenting, learn what to do when we are triggered by our kids, find out what goes into creating an emotionally well-adjusted child, and so much more. Corey, thanks so much for joining the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So, Corey, you've got a pretty extensive background when it comes to uh, not only helping parents, but also you've got a background on the behavioral side of child kind of behavior specialists and understanding uh, children, even with uh, you've worked with children with uh, exceptionalities and certain learning disabilities. Maybe let's start there. Uh, What did you learn with working with kids that uh, have certain challenges that you've been able to kind of take away with some of your other uh, coaching and teaching? Absolutely. So prior to getting into the parent coaching, parent support piece, I worked for 15 years in clinical practice supporting children with different developmental um, exceptionalities, a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. So for 15 years, I worked in clinical practice supporting children and building skills, working through problematic behaviors. A large chunk of that was also supporting parents um, and helping them advocate for their children for, you know, getting the right supports in place in the school systems, also helping them at home. And, you know, what I want to say, my biggest takeaway is from, you know, working with neurodiverse learners is really understanding that every child, regardless of age or ability, has the ability to learn. It's just a matter of finding out how they learn best and, you know, really using their strengths to boost their weaknesses. So I have taken that kind of, (laughs) you know, thought process into my own experiences in raising my children, but also in the work I'm doing now to support parents and really helping them see the best of their child's abilities um, and really, you know, helping them achieve their parenting goals. How do we really connect with the child to allow them to be their best and do their best? So with autism specifically, you know, what is the prevailing thought right now with where's autism coming from? Um, What is the varying uh, levels of of the spectrum that that a child could fall on? Um, Is this an evolving science or or have they kind of figured out a little bit of some of the causes and some of the types? Is it genetic? Is it uh, hereditary? Is it, is it, uh, I I don't know much about autism and, and I'm assuming some of our listeners don't either. Yeah, I mean, this is a very controversial subject, I want to say, in terms of cause and where it's coming from. It is an evolving, you know, field of science in in terms of the medical world and, and everything coming out of it. There are some studies that are showing, you know, some genetic links. There's a lot of speculation out there about environmental links. Hard to say. However, there are some great early interventions that are supporting kids and families along the way, um, which have shown really promising outcomes. There's a lot of research behind that. And um, in terms of the spectrum, the diagnostic criteria does keep expanding. So the spectrum is quite large as it stands. So there are varying levels and degrees of autism spectrum disorder out there. Um, And to be honest, 
honest, in you know, the 20 plus years that I've been doing this on a whole, I don't think I've met one child yet that presents the same as the next. So the spectrum is quite large. I've worked with families with children that are completely nonverbal and have really challenging behaviors to kids who are extremely verbal <laughs> and quite social, maybe a little quirky, um, you know, but it's such a varying high range of symptoms that we're seeing fall under the diagnostic criteria. So it is, I want to say it is evolving and it continues to evolve as we learn more and more research continues to come out on, um, on what autism is and, you know, how people are affected by it and whatnot. So I'm going to reconfirm the disclaimer that this is obviously an evolving science and that it's the causation is very speculative, but I'm curious about what the findings are showing with environmental, um, I guess, um, impacts that are leading to potentially autism, like what could parents do? And then you had mentioned also early intervention techniques that are showing promising. Can you maybe expand a little bit more on the environmental? and in, in yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far into it because I think there is so much speculation and not enough. Sure and science behind it and I everything I do is research-based but you know my, my message to parents around this is you know if you have any concern with your child's development from an early age you always want to speak to your child's pediatrician or family doctor to get their input because you know the second a pediatrician starts following a child when they, when they're a baby when they're born they're always going to be checking in on developmental milestones so for, you know, what I always tell parents is you have to trust your gut. If for whatever reason you feel like your child is not progressing in their development or something feels off, do not go to Google. <laughs> Call your doctor and speak to your doctor because your doctor can do a screening to assess whether it is just within normal range of development or there is cause for concern. Now, in terms of diagnosing autism, um, you can't quite do that until kids are between the age, I don't know, I say 18 months to two-year-old two is probably, two and a half is probably your range of earliest diagnosis um, because there is such a wide range of typical development. So again, if there's any concern, speak to your doctor and they can guide you from there. Should a child you know, receive some kind of autism diagnosis, the doctor will prescribe or make recommendations for early intervention, whether it's seeing a speech and language pathologist, an occupational therapist, looking into applied behavior analysis, which is a type of, you know, early intervention therapy that focuses on behavior modification. There's really, it's, there's all kinds of different um, interventions out there that you know, can meet a child's need. It just depends on what the child needs. Again, because the diagnostic criteria is so large, some kids will need a full team assembled of different therapists who can work collaboratively together to support the family and the child, where some kids just might need more focus on their speech and language development, right? So... Which ironically was 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 myself as a kid. Um, I was struggling a little bit in school and a little bit um, elsewhere. And then um, it turned out I had a speech impediment, so I couldn't quite. Uh, the hearing was a little bit, uh, I guess, coming around to being developed, and I couldn't say my R, so I had to go to speech therapy. And then um, they got me tested for a bunch of things, and turns out everything was, was good. It was more just a, I had to work through some speech uh, issues, which which is pretty common. So, okay, so. When it comes to then uh, children in general, so you've got a pretty good background when it comes to applied behavioral analysis. Can you maybe explain what that is and then how that may apply to parents and children just in general? Yeah. So applied behavior analysis is, is a body of science around, it's the science of learning of how, how we behave the way we behave and why we behave the way we behave. And this body of um, literature and science can be applied in so many different areas of life. We can use it in early intervention with kids who have developmental disabilities or neurodiverse learners. Um, it's been used in geriatrics. It's been used in, um, you know, different criminal cases. It's, it's kind of <laughs> organizational behavior management. It can be used across the board. So, you know, in my experience in applied behavior analysis, um, and studying it and applying it, obviously, in the early intervention clinical, you know, arena, I want to say in child development, 
you know, what I've done is I've been able to take all my knowledge and expertise from that and apply it to parenting because behavior is behavior, whether you're working with children or parents. Um, the, the, um, I want to say <coughs> the, the theories and all the methodologies that are, that embody applied behavior analysis can be generalized across different populations. So that was my big jump out of clinical practice into supporting parents in the community because for 15 years I worked focusing on children and working with children specifically and for many years a mentor of mine who's a clinical psychologist kept saying Corey parents in the community need your help and I kept saying why now like what for like trust me they do they do and I didn't really understand it until I had my own kids so I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old right now and I never understood it until I had my own kids and then I found myself using all these strategies that I would use in clinical practice with kids I was using it on my own kids <laughs> and it worked beautifully you know just in terms of like their development and, and supporting their development and their learning and you know getting them to listen and understand expectations and boundaries at home and I saw how beautifully it kind of just melded into the family dynamic and that's when I had this aha moment of oh wow, parents could really use these strategies at home to really support a lot of just the typical ages and stages things that happen. You know, we have, you have heard of terrible twos, those three major years, those fabulous, not so fabulous fours, like there's all these, these phrases for them, but that's what it is at every age and stage of development. Kids you know, there is some kind of growth and development that happens and we see it outwardly, um, often in the form of some kind of behavior. And, and, and we want to see it because a lot of, um, you know, it's a sign that our children are growing and developing, but it's also a little challenging because our kids at, you know, different ages and stages need different things developmentally. And unless you've studied child development <laughs> or psychology, you wouldn't just know these things, right? So that's what I, I love sharing with my parents and my families that I work with in my private practice because it's non-intuitive stuff. So I've totally taken all this clinical work that I've, you know, done over the years and I've just, I've kind of, you know, infused it into the day-to-day -day, through the ages and stages. And it's been incredible to see how, how, it's, um, how it generalizes and how it works with kids across the board. You know, just in terms of like their development and, and supporting their development and their learning and, you know, getting them to listen and understand expectations and boundaries at home. And I saw how beautifully it kind of just melded into the family dynamic. And that's when I had this aha moment of, oh, wow, parents could really use these strategies at home to really support a lot of just the typical ages and stages things that happen. You know, we have, you have heard of terrible twos, those three major years, those fabulous, not so fabulous fours, like there's all these, these phrases for them, but that's what it is at every age and stage of development. Kids, you know, there is some kind of growth and development that happens and we see it outwardly, um, often in the form of some kind of behavior. And, and, and we want to see it because a lot of, um, you know, it's a sign that our children are growing and developing, but it's also a little challenging because our kids at, you know, different ages and stages need different things developmentally. And unless you've studied child development <laughs> or psychology, you wouldn't just know these things, right? So that's what I, I love sharing with my parents and my families that I work with in my private practice because it's non-intuitive stuff. So I've totally taken all this clinical work that I've, you know, done over the years and I've just, I've kind of, you know, infused it into the day-to-day -day, through the ages and stages. And it's been incredible to see how, how it's, um, how it generalizes and how it works with kids across the board. So I'm going to ask a former Corey, uh, so, so Corey that was still studying, when you first started getting into more of the psychology and the behavioral analysis, what was something that stood out to you or surprised you where you're like, whoa, I didn't know this and, and this could be applied for just general life or obviously in, in the arena of, of ch childcare? 
It's such a good question. So when, I mean, when I went through all my studying, you know, I did my master's in child study and education under kind of the umbrella of human and applied psychology. And then I went into study applied behavior analysis and became a board certified behavior analyst. But when I was studying behavior analysis, I was doing it all within the context of autism. Because I was at that time working in clinical practice as a therapist and I wanted more and I wanted, you know, I wanted to grow my career. And so I went ahead and I did more studying to, you know, become certified. And again, it was all within the lens of autism because I was living in that world. I was working, I don't know, 50 hours a week (laughs) doing therapy with families. So no joke, the second I had kids and I started, you know, just really implementing some of the simple, simple strategies we were using in practice. I, it was like a big balloon moment, like a hot moment, things around like praise, how to talk to your children, like something that you wouldn't think about necessarily because it's so automatic that, you know, we just talk to our children, but like how to deliver praise, how to encourage them, how to set them up for success, how to, you know, one thing I work with on, with all my families is how to, not be so reactive, but how to be responsive, how to be proactive to set your kiddos up for success instead of always just reacting and reacting and reacting. Because what we know is that (laughs) as adults, as humans, we make, there's a a study that, you know, I read recently that said we make somewhere around like 36,000 subconscious decisions a day, right? On the subconscious level. And so much of that goes into our parenting. So, you know, I often am speaking to families who say, Corey, like I'm constantly yelling at my child or I'm nagging my child when they don't listen to me, or I'm bribing and negotiating with a three-year-old. Like, what am I doing? Right. And a lot of that is us as parents, just reacting to our kids based on what we know from the way we were parented. Right. So, again, the way we were parented and our experiences with that have kind of been ingrained into our subconscious. And that's just how we move forward with our kids. But there's a lot of parents out there saying, like, I'll never do things the way my parents did. And that's where I need your help to kind of help me rewire what we call reparent myself so I can be better for my kids because I don't want to be yelling. And I don't want to be bribing. And I want to have a good relationship with my child, right? So it's it's amazing how simple things just like how to talk to your child, right, um, becomes something that, you know, when you, you put a little mindfulness into it, totally changes the game in your parenting. I can feel so many of the listeners right now just kind of like perk up and maybe move to the edge of their seat. And they're saying, okay, Corey, yes, I feel like I'm reactive in my parenting. I praise my children. You know, I'm, I'm bribing. I find myself bribing and negotiating with a three-year-old. So let's maybe unpack a few of these and, and share some tips and tricks. So what would you say then to someone who uh, feels that they're as a parent being reactive as opposed to proactive? What's the difference and what could be a way that a parent could regain that control and be more proactive? Yeah. So this is a great question. So There's a huge difference between reactive parenting and responsive parenting. Responsive parenting is when you are focusing on your child's developmental needs and you're parenting to those needs. Because every six months, our kids go through huge growth spurts. And you'll see this soon because you're at four months now. So Mm -hmm. even from zero to four, you've probably seen big change. But zero to six months, huge growth. 6 to 12, huge growth, 12 to 18. So every six months, our kids go through a massive growth spurt. And sometimes we see it on the outside, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's more internal because it's more of this like, you know, it's more of like their nervous system is evolving, their their cognition, like all that stuff that you don't see outwardly. But every six months, we have these growth, these growth spurts happen, which means every six months, our kids' developmental needs change. And As a responsive parent, you're following those needs and you're parenting to those needs versus reactive parenting, which is where you're, you know, you're going off the seat of your pants, off the cuff, and you're just responding to your child in that moment. And that's when it becomes more about you and less about your child. Because if you're finding that your child's doing something that's frustrating, you're going to react. Whether you're yelling, you're being dismissive, you're dishing out consequences, punishment, you're threatening them, 
that's more because you feel triggered (laughs) and you don't know what to do with that. A lot of parents, when they feel those triggering moments, feel a lack of control over the situation. And when it comes to our children, that's probably the most uncomfortable feeling to have because as the parent, you're hardwired to be the protector, to be in control, to know what to do, to be able to keep this little person safe and healthy. And the second we're put in a situation with our child when we don't know what to do because they're challenging us or pushing boundaries or something's up that we just aren't sure what it is, we feel triggered. And what often happens is when we feel triggered, we react to bring our fight or flight response back down to baseline. So it's more than about your emotional reaction to those situations versus being responsive where you're mindful, you understand your child's needs, you understand that this isn't about you, this is about your child, and you know what to do because you understand versus just flying by the seat of your pants and reacting, reacting. Does that make sense? It, it very much so does. And Corey, you had a great uh, post recently on your Instagram, at uh, Corey, C-O-R underscore Stern, um, C-O-R-I, that's right, uh, Corey underscore uh, Stern. And you talked about yelling at your child has nothing to do with your child. Um, And it seems like that's what you're talking about here, where you're unpacking that there's a lot more going on with you and the yelling is more of just kind of a reaction. Can you maybe talk to that about parents that maybe lose their cool a little bit and how to either rein it back or maybe help them to understand why it is that they're yelling in the first place? Yes, it's this is like this is my one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> so, you know, parenting is such an emotional journey. We are extremely emotionally connected to our children. So we are very easily triggered by our children because of that emotional connection. Throw in the fact that a lot of us aren't sleeping the best. Um, Self-care and finding time for ourselves is really challenging when you have kids. You know, it's just there's so much going on in life. We're working hard. We're managing a home. um, we're, We're managing our relationships with our partner. Some of us taking care of our own parents, multiple children in the house. Um, like I said, maybe not sleeping so well, like there's just so much, um, which, you know, increases our irritability as parents. So becoming triggered by our kids is something that is just too easy. It happens often, it happens easily, and it's okay. It is so okay to feel triggered by your child. It's what you do with that, that counts, that matters. I feel triggered by my children all the time, (laughs) you know, like... you know, bribing is a big one. If you don't, you know, if you listen to me, then I will get you this or I will give you this. Um, Some parents are ignoring their kids and walking away and that's how they do it. Right. So there's all these different ways that, you know, parents are reacting when they feel triggered. And a lot of those ways, you know, I always challenge parents to say, why am I doing that? You know, am I doing that? Because that's what I know. That's how I was parented. Am I doing that because I don't know any other way? Am I doing that because I truly think that right now, right here, that is the best response for my child based on what my child needs, you know? Um, So we have to really, we have to really clue in to what's going on with us in those moments. And the first step to making the shift from reactive parenting to responsive parenting is becoming mindful of how we feel in those moments, whether your child's not listening to you, whether you got to get out the door on time and like, there's just so much going on and your child's off in the other direction playing while you need them over here getting their shoes on whether you know you've put them to bed and they're coming out of their bedroom four times after you've said goodnight with like a different excuse 
you're nodding your head. This will all come to you eventually. <laughs> um, meal times, you know, they're throwing their food on the floor. There's so many triggers that we experience on the day to day with our kids, whether they're, you know, 18 months, two years old, three years old, four years old. My daughter is eight and I'm still, you know, fine. It never stops. It keeps going. So we have to become mindful of how we're feeling in those moments and then try to understand why we're feeling it. Is it because that's what we know? Is it because we don't understand our child's needs? Is it because we are exhausted and irritable because our kid didn't sleep last night and you were up for six hours? And, you know, is it because you haven't exercised in three days and you need that as your outlet to feel calm and grounded? Why are we responding that way? So once we can understand why we are feeling so triggered, then we move on to understand how we can manage those triggers. For some parents, it's just not responding in the moment. For some parents, it's modeling coping strategies in front of their child so their child can also learn how to cope in those moments. For some kids, um, for some parents, sorry, it's being open and honest with your child and saying, right now, mommy feels really frustrated. I'm going over there to take a break. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to figure this one out. Um, But at the end of the day, as parents, we need to learn coping strategies because if we are not showing effective coping strategies in those triggering moments and we are constantly reacting, the message we're sending to our child is this is how you deal with conflict. This is how you deal with confrontation. And for me, I want to do the opposite. I want to set my kiddo up for success. And I want that for all my families. And this is what I teach inside my, what it's called the Empowered Parent Effect Program. This is what I teach inside my program is how can we as parents set our children up for success? Not just in those moments when things feel tough, but in the long run. Because, you know, whether you want to believe this or not, you are your child's greatest teacher. Everything you do, everything you say, every move you make, they are absorbing. They are sponges. They are watching you like a hawk. Even when they are sleeping, they hear you. Just like you hear them when you're sleeping, right? So they are so aware of you and your actions that you want to Make sure you are modeling appropriate language, appropriate behavior, appropriate responding, not just to diffuse a situation, but to build skill. For me, it's all about skill building. I want parents to constantly, constantly be in teacher mode, which sounds exhausting. But if you have the right tools and strategies, it's not exhausting, right? And just through osmosis, our kids learn how to talk to other people, how to show kindness, how to solve problems, how to plan. A big one for a lot of parents is getting out of the house in the morning on time to get to school, to daycare, to preschool, so parents can get to work, right? That's a a huge one for a lot of families. And, you know, yes, the goal is to get out the door on time because there's a domino effect there. And we can put strategies in place for that. But at the same time, I want to build skill so you don't have to constantly be on top of that morning routine and your kid can become a lot more independent with it. So, yes, I want to get them out the door on time so things, you know, I can get to work and we're not late and all that stuff. But at the same time, I'm going to teach them how to plan, follow multi-step instructions, become independent with their dressing right? It's, it's all about skill building. So if we can, as parents, understand how to build skill based on where they're at developmentally, we're already ahead of the game in terms of reducing behaviors and, and becoming more responsive versus reactive. Does that make sense? Very much so. So when you're looking at building skills, I'm assuming as a parent, Part about being mindful and proactive is understanding what skill sets your child is going to need, not only in this moment and in this stage of their age and and stage, but also to be a proactive and and, and a good adult. Is there a good way to kind of understand what skill sets are are the best to be developing in a child at this certain age and um, stage? 
Yes. <laughs> and it's like it changes every age and stage, right? I mean, we always want to follow our child's lead on, you know, on where they're at. So whether they're in the stage of starting to crawl, starting to walk, starting to talk, um, you know, starting going from, you know, either breastfeeding and formula to solids, like it doesn't matter starting to get dressed in the morning on their own to go to school, right? So every kid, there's obviously a range of what's appropriate in terms of development. But you want to always follow your child's lead. If your child is showing interest, for example, when you guys transition onto solid foods, if you haven't already, you know, there's this whole body of literature on child, on, you know, children feeding themselves and what that looks like and, and how you can build skill through that. Um, you know, as soon as your child is physically able to do certain things, you want to absolutely be modeling how to do those things so we can build skill things for example like getting dressed you know if we we can always scaffold it so if the idea is putting on a pair of underwear or a pull-up diaper for example you know you hold it so they can get into it but then let them pull it up on their own so you can always take a skill and break it down into its smaller components to allow them to start to practice different things. Um, there's all those skills that are, are around physical growth and development, which I think are the more obvious ones because you see your child as they evolve and they develop. But then there's a set of skills called the executive functioning skills, which are those higher order cognitive processing skills that really allow us to function at a higher level. And we can start focusing on them at a very, very early age. This is things like planning, organizing, um, initiating a task to, and you know following it through to completion. Sounds crazy to talk about it in the context of little kids, but I do believe this is where we set our children up for success. You know, so I, for example, one of the most used phrases in my house, is the plan. And I've been using this with my kids since they were two years old. Whenever something came up that they were upset about, that we had to work through, problem solving is a big one. You know, it was always about the plan. I know you don't like this. I'm sorry we can't have this, you know, the cookie right now or the iPad right now. Let's figure out a plan. Okay, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. So even introducing language to help start building these skills is so important. Um, always setting my kids up for success the night before when I'm tucking them in. Okay, this is the plan for tomorrow. When we wake up in the morning. Okay, here's the plan for today. You guys are going to get dressed. We're going to have breakfast. We're shoes on and out to school. Um, when I pick them up from school, okay, guys, this is the plan. We're going home. We're going to have snack. You have hockey. You have dance. Home for dinner. Okay. <laughs> so we use it in big picture to, to build predictability because that's really big for kids. So we're modeling planning skills that way, but also in moments of conflict when, you know, something doesn't go their way and they're upset. We always... I have a three-step system. You val you always want to connect with them. So you validate their feelings. You let them feel heard, seen, and understood. You then problem solve. So you talk about the plan, and then you execute it. So validate, state the plan, and then execute the plan with them. That's kind of my three-step problem-solving system with kids when, when they are heightened and we want to de-escalate them. But even like you can use the plan in so many different contexts, which is great because it diffuses situations, but it also builds skill. So I always like to try to, you know, maximize our teaching moments with our kids, um, you know, and a lot of it is done through modeling, which you can do at a very, very early age just by introducing the language. And as they get older, you start to execute these things with them. And then eventually they start to do them on their own. Right. So much to unpack there, Corey. I know. Okay, so I no, it was fantastic because I was going to ask you. Um, a lot of the physical skills do seem a little bit intuitive, yeah. but to be a really high functioning, um, you know, adult, it seems like it's a lot of those emotional and those mental skill sets. And and you touch on them. You call them the executive um, function skills. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was going to ask you what, what are some of the most important ones. And so you had mentioned, you know, planning, organizing, um, initiating from the beginning to actual following through problem solving. Yeah. Is there any other? 
other ones that we're missing here? Because those are all fantastic. Yeah, those would be big ones for little, like for the younger kids. There's a lot more as kids get older into like the school ages, into high school, things like metacognition, short, um, you know, working memory, things that really become big, big, big players when we're focusing on more academic tasks and skills. But for life skills and early growth and development, those are the big ones I want to say. Which, and I just want to clarify that those executive functioning skills, which are higher cogn- higher order cognitive skills, are in a-, a different area of development than emotional skills, right? And there's a whole body of literature around emotional intelligence. And we're seeing a lot of buzz around emotional awareness and mindfulness and emotional intelligence in in the early years because we know so much more now around you know children's mental health and how it impacts in the later years which is fantastic but it is i mean they they do work together but it is a a separate area of development from let's talk about that then for a second Corey, because so that's great so we have the mind side we've got the uh executive functional um skills function skills yeah function or functional Functioning, executive functioning. function or functioning, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, so that's for the more the mind side, but then let's let's maybe touch on the emotional side. So it seems like your three step um, pro or your three step stage to combat any sort of challenges with your child, which is validating them, coming up with a plan, and then actually executing on it. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming the validating part is a big part of helping them to express their emotions in a healthy way. To you're validating that feelings and emotions are okay. Uh, can we maybe talk about some of the skills of how to create a, a well-adjusted emotional child? A hundred percent. So I think this is the biggest shift for parents nowadays um, from, you know, when we look at these generational shifts in parenting, I think this is probably the biggest one that we're seeing. And it's it's this idea that, again, back to responsive parenting, we're responding more to our children's emotions versus reacting to ours, right? And what we know now through a lot of research is that our children experience emotions at a very young age, just like us adults do. And if we do not address those emotions and validate those emotions and teach our children how to cope with those emotions, or even, you know, we scale it back, feel comfortable with those emotions, we end up with a cohort of children that are not effective at coping. And I think that's why so many parents nowadays, and and I say it in a joking way, but it's so true, why so many parents that, you know, I know within my network and just in, in this general cohort have generalized anxiety disorders or depression or, ther- you know, are going through a lot of therapy to work through, you know, their life experiences and things that they've gone through. It's because, you know, we were never taught how to effectively cope, and I'm, this is a very generalized statement, obviously, how to effectively cope with different emotional states. And again, when we don't learn how to cope, we end up falling into a pit of anxiety, depression, and all these other mental health um, kind of gamuts that we're that we now know so much more about, right? So from an early age, the research is showing us that it is so effective and so important to teach effective coping mechanisms, um, you know, in terms of their, in terms of emotional, different emotional states at a, at a young age to really promote healthy mental health as our kids grow up. So things like recognizing that, our, you know, the first step, recognizing that our children do have feelings and it's not just the terrible twos you know like or the three major years there are emotions that are behind a lot of those behaviors like adults we have a thought that triggers an emotion that triggers a behavior so a lot of the times when our kids are behaving in certain ways there isn't an emotion and a thought behind those behaviors all behaviors happen for a reason we know that Um, And we have to understand what those reasons are so we can really connect with our child and address what's going on and set them up for success later on. Whether it's something as simple as they want the cookie and they can't have it now to they are a highly sensitive emotional child and thing, you know, things trigger them very, very easily. Um, So, you know, really 
welcoming our children's emotions, I think are, is a big shift versus trying to shut them down and stop them. You know, when our little guys are crying because they're really upset that like, you know, the tower that they were building fell down in our eyes. It's like, okay, no big deal. We'll just build it back up. But for them, that's like, a that's a big deal. That's really upsetting. That's really frustrating. They worked hard at that, or that's really upsetting because they really liked what they had. And we can't as parents just be brushing off their thoughts and feelings um, that they're trying to express. Now, a lot of our kids in their early age have limited speech and language skills because they're young. They just haven't, they're emerging. They haven't developed yet. So a lot of the times we see it come out through behavior because they're thinking and, and feeling a certain thing in a certain way. So speaking more, you know, as this shift that we're seeing now in terms of emotional intelligence and emotional development is when you're with your child, you want to be speaking more to those emotions versus the behavior, because the behavior is just a symptom of whatever they're thinking and feeling. So a lot of, you know, so number one, let's welcome them. Let's welcome their emotions as big, as small, as intense or not. They're valid and they have to be validated. And all our kids, you know, if we look at young kids and we look at the research behind early childhood development, all they want is to feel understood, heard, and seen. That's something they're hardwired for. So when they're upset about something, it's not like, okay, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Let's move on. We got to get out the door. It's Oh, I'm sorry that happened. That sucks. I know you really wanted that cookie, but it's breakfast time and it's morning and we can't have it. But I know you love the chocolate chip ones. I know it's sucky. This is the plan. We're going to pack them in your lunch and you can have them for lunch or you can have them after dinner. What do you prefer, lunch or dinner? Make a choice, right? So the validation piece, let's welcome them. If we can welcome our, our kids' emotions, we're less triggered by them. Okay. If we can validate them, they're somewhat fulfilled because they feel seen, heard, and understood. And then we can build skill by discussing the plan and executing the plan. And along the way, empowering our children to make choices because again, they're hardwired, you know, for that. And and as we look at all this, you know, developing emotional intelligence, there's two important things that our young kids are hardwired for. One is the need to feel a sense of belonging. That's the connection piece. That's where kids are seeking attention. They want that connection. The other one is to feel a sense of empowerment. Kids want to feel a sense of autonomy, of control, of independence. I, I call this the response-able stage where they think they can do it all, but they might not be able to, but they believe they can, which is fantastic. We want to honor that, and there's ways to do that. But connection and empowerment, it all goes back to those. And those, you know, I always use the analogy that our kids have these two buckets and one is the connection bucket and one is the empowerment bucket. And as parents, it's our jobs, it's our job, sorry, to keep these buckets full at all times. When these buckets start to deplete, that's when we see a lot of behaviors unfold, right? So in terms of being a responsive parent and understanding that connection is a huge piece for our kids' development and empowerment is we have to find ways to fulfill those needs. So that would be an example of responsive parenting, understanding at the different ages and stages what that looks like in terms of empowerment and connection. Because at 18 months, it looks very different than it does at three years old, right? Um, so, so that's, you know, that's the idea here. We really want to speak to those emotions versus speaking to the behavior. So welcoming the emotions, validating them, and then teaching our children how to cope with them through modeling is so, so, so effective. And I don't know if this sounds like woo woo to some of you, but I have done it for eight years now between my two kids who are eight and six, and they've been put in situations um, whether, you know, it's different social situations or, you know, walking just even today, this morning is a perfect example. There was a reorganization at my kid's school and they hired a new grade one teacher. So my son was put into this new class. He's been at school for three weeks now. And today he had to go into a new class with a new teacher. 
And new friends, new everything. New friends. I mean, some people he knew, but new. It doesn't matter. It's new. That kid took it like a champ, right? And and I think, you know, we prepped him for it. But he also, in the past six years, has learned such good coping skills for when things don't necessarily go his way. I mean, it's not perfect, but he's got some good skills. And he is a highly sensitive, emotional child. For those of you that have a child like this, you know how trying this can be. But he was incredible. He showed up to school. He was so resilient. Resiliency is key. We're building resiliency through all this emotional work we're doing with our children. And he was great. We introduced him to the teacher. He was calm. He even said this morning going to school, mommy, this feels tricky, but I know I can do it. Like what six-year-old says that, right? Like we've put a lot of work into this. Um, And, you know, what I'm trying to say is when my children have been confronted with situations where resiliency is required, which is which is what we experience when we have coping mechanisms. It's incredible to see it unfold. You know, my my I have many friends that say, you know, my you know I sign my kids up to all these extracurriculars, and people say to me, well, do they know someone going to that camp, or do they know? Like, no, I don't sign my kids up knowing people necessarily. I sign them up based on what I think they're going to be interested in. But I believe that they have the skills to walk into a social environment not knowing anyone and know how to do and what to do, not just to meet people, but like how to manage that like tricky, uncertain feeling because we've worked on building that resiliency, right? So at the end of the day, that's what we want to do here is, is, is teach coping skills through all this emotional regulation so our children can be resilient. So when they're faced with different stressful situations, whether it's some, something like switching into a new class or starting a program, not knowing anyone or bigger life events like an illness in the family or moving to a new home, they have something in them that they can work with. And it's not just a downward spiral into like emotional turmoil. Does that make sense? So, so you talked about it very much. So you talked about emotions being you welcome the emotions, you validate them. And then you had mentioned modeling as the third step of that. Yeah. So is that how they're learning um, to, I guess, cope and to be emotionally, I guess, uh, aware is modeling being seen how you handle similar situations when things don't go your way? Exactly. And like I said before, kids learn through osmosis in the early years. They sure. are a sponge. They pick up everything. So if mommy or daddy is doing it, then that's the way to do it. If mommy and daddy are thinking this way about this thing, that's the way to think about it. They are so matter of fact in the early years, right? So if they see it, they believe it. So, you know, if you're finding yourself in a stressful situation with your child, whether they're not listening to you or they're not going to bed or they're throwing their food on the floor, I see it a lot around toilet training, you know, you really, once you validate those feelings and you come up with a plan, you want to execute the plan. And part of the plan is really um, modeling those coping mechanisms. So whether it's saying something like, okay, I know this is not what I want, but I know that if I, you know, it'll come later or I'm just going to sit here and take three deep breaths and you model those deep breaths to show that they don't have to, you know, reach the pinnacle of their emotional breakdown scale right away. Um, Or if you, you know, you give them language to even express how they're feeling, that can reduce some of it. Like even something as simple as saying, I'm so frustrated helps to release versus like, you know, what I see kids doing, hitting their parents, kicking them, biting them. I see a lot of, um, so yeah, you want to model those coping skills. And again, there's so many different ones out there that we can model for a kid. It's just, you know, when I work with my families, we kind of dive into what would be the most appropriate based on your child's age and what, what is just going on in the context of the family. Um, but yes, modeling is, everything. That's how kids learn. As adults, it seems like a lot of our emotional responses are based on the stories that we're telling ourselves about a certain situation. So something happens, we tell a story about what that means, and then we get an emotional response and then we react to that. Children at an early age, when they created that that, that block tower, as you talked about, and it fell down, are they also telling stories in their head, which is triggering the emotion? Or is the emotion just kind of this pure flood of, of emotions? Is it based on storytelling? And, and is this even um, an accurate way to look at emotions in the response? Yeah, no, you're you're right on. The only thing we have to be cognizant of our children, our world is this big. 
our life experiences fill this world, our knowledge, our education, our interactions. Our children's world is this big, (laughs) which is quite limited. So the stories they're telling themselves, the thoughts they're telling themselves are so limited compared to ours. So it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. Our children's perspective around the world and how the world works is minute. Whereas we understand big we understand that it's no big deal because you can build the tower and you'll be just as happy. But to them, it's the end of the world because they took so much time in their little world and so much effort in their little world with their tiny little hands and their stamina to put this together to have it all just fall apart. So as parents, we often want to be putting ourselves in our children's shoes. So this is part of the mindfulness piece. Instead of reacting to what's going on by yelling or, you know, walking away or taking something away or punishment, We want to stop to say, oh gosh, what is my child going through right now? Like, okay, so you worked hard, you put the time in, it felt like a long time for you probably, like you really liked this because you saw the product of your effort and then boom, just like that, it was taken away. It's perspective. For them, it's a huge deal. For us, it's not a big deal. I always say to parents, like especially getting out the door on time in the morning, kids are very much on their own agenda. They don't, they don't, perspective taking is hard at a young age. Um, They're very egocentric. Everything is about them, them, and only them. And they want it now and they want it yesterday. And I say to parents, you know, the best example is getting out the door on time to get to school or daycare or preschool, whatever it is. And our kids are busy playing with their toys and then they dump it there and then they go off to the next and they don't want to eat breakfast because they have to do this and they're so you know distractible they don't care that you have to get them fed to get out the door on time to get them to school so you can work to make money to support your family they don't care it's all about them in the here in the now and that's one of those big bigger ideas around understanding their developmental needs like if you don't understand that you are going to be so triggered so quickly so often because you just don't understand the way your child is thinking so back to your point perspective is everything so it seems like that i'm going to stay with the block analogy here for a second it seems like that is a wonderful teaching opportunity for us as parents but a natural um, desire or impulse would be to help the child to stop being um, emotionally triggered and help them rebuild it up because we're like i could build that tower in in two seconds and i'm assuming that's not going to teach resilience so what what would you suggest then would be just using this as an analogy a healthy way to use that as a teaching opportunity to teach resilience and to help them process their emotions that's you're so right about this so our initial reaction would be like don't cry it's okay look mommy can fix it daddy can fix it it's back together what have we just taught our child? We're, we're going to rescue them from this situation. And they'll probably just knock it back in because they're still going to be pissed off, to be honest. So how to react in that situation? You would look at your child. You would maybe have like an upset face. You would change your tone in your face because body language is huge for them. And you would just be like, oh, I'm so upset that happened. I'm sorry. You worked so hard on that. I know you worked hard. I know you loved it. I'm sorry. That sucks. But it's okay. It's okay. You know why? Because you know exactly how to build that and you can fix it. And if you want mommy's help, you can ask for help. If you want to do it yourself, you can do it yourself. That's okay. If you want to come back to it, that's okay too. I'm sorry that happened. Here's the plan. What do you want the plan to be? And depending on like where their their speech and language is, right? You would obviously modify it to be age appropriate, but that's the idea. You would validate it. You would come up with a plan. So you want them to feel seen, heard, and understood. You would come up with a plan and then you would execute the plan. So I'm sorry that happened. I know that sucks. You worked so hard on that. Okay, let's figure out a plan here. Do you want to leave it or do you want to rebuild it? Rebuild? Okay. You want to do it alone or mommy help you? Mommy help. Okay, let's do it. Wow. I'm so, and then once you're going through it, I'm so proud. So this is where we solidify the learning. You praise them. I'm so proud of you. I know that was a hard situation when that tower fell, but you rebuilt it and you stayed calm. You did so good. 
You always want to focus on the effort versus the outcome. So I don't care that the tower got built, but I care that, you know, you really stayed calm and you came up with a good plan. That process, that's the behavior we want to teach, not the outcome of building the tower, because it's not always just going to be the tower. That tower skill doesn't generalize to other situations, but being able to, to, to let the feeling out and think of a plan and execute on your plan, that's the behavior we want to teach. That's, that's where resiliency comes from. So our children ultimately need to know that it's okay to feel how they feel. We want them to feel comfortable being upset, frustrated, or angry. We want to give them that and honor that. But then we want to teach them what to do with it. And we have to show them that we're comfortable. So instead of squashing the don't cry, don't cry, it's okay, I'll fix it. Because that just tells them mommy's uncomfortable, daddy's uncomfortable with you crying right now. Stop, stop, stop. It's making us feel uncomfortable. We want to welcome it. Oh, that sucks. I'm so upset that fell. Ah. Let them know that like you're okay with it. It's okay. It's safe to feel this way. And once they feel safety in that, then problem solving is quite, I don't want to say simple because nothing's simple, but it comes quite naturally once they get used to that. It makes sense? It does. Now, I'm assuming if you're doing, if you're being a proactive, if you're being a responsive, if you're being a very present and mindful parent, it's going to solve a lot of the behavioral issues that may arise in a child. But for those parents that are dealing with it, with a child that's constantly arguing or is not listening to them, is there is there some thoughts that you have around to help to, to kind of pull a child in to maybe help them to, to listen to you and, and to uh, not be arguing as much? Yes. Yeah, so this is something I teach inside my – I always do a workshop called Avoiding and Preventing Power Struggles, right? Because this is – I mean, every parent goes through this at some point. Um, and this is a big, you know – pillar of the empowered parent effect program is how to you know when you're in those challenging situations how do you you know diffuse it to to avoid it blowing up into something bigger and you know for me it's all about connection you have to be able to connect with your child in those moments in order to wheel them, reel them back in to diffuse any situation. If they don't feel connected to you, it means they feel a lack of sense of security in themselves and in the environment around them, and that feels scary for them. And that just escalates the behavior, right? So we always want to come from a point of connection. If you yelled at your child and the situation diffuses, but you feel guilty after that, go back and repair it. Go back and apologize to your child. Don't be afraid to apologize. Again, let them see how you're working through some of this confrontation so they can learn at the same time. Repairing is huge. I'm so sorry I yelled at you. Mommy was feeling extremely upset and it was really hard for me to yell and it's something I'm working on and I'm going to do my best for that not to happen again. I love you. Here's the situation though. Next time I ask you to get dressed for bed, I need you to listen. Why? Because it's mommy's job to keep you healthy and safe. And part of being healthy and safe is getting ready for bed because sleep keeps us very healthy, right? So it's, it's the connection piece. So if you yell or you do something where you feel guilty after the fact, I've had so many parents say to me, I yelled at my kid. I walked away. I literally closed the door behind me, sank into the floor and started bawling my eyes out because I felt sick about it. I didn't like the way I felt about it. Great. Embrace those feelings. Recognize how you felt. Once you have your shit together, excuse my language, go back and repair it with your child. The repair piece is so important. If you're in a situation and you're, you know, your child is just not listening to you, they're not listening to you for a reason. It's either because that empowerment bucket is empty, the connection bucket is empty, and you can use that moment to engage them either through empowerment or connection through one of the, you know, different strategies within those buckets to re-engage them. But for me, connection trumps everything. I love it. And I'm going to um, take that as a invitation for my last question, because I'm assuming this is going to be one of the three, but 
Corey, if you were to, you know, gift every parent with maybe three skill sets or, or three personality traits or three things that we can develop in ourselves to be great parents, to raise great kids, um, I'm assuming connection is one of them. But what would be maybe two or three other ones that you would want every parent to have or hope that they have? Yeah, this is a great question. Connection is huge. Connecting with your child, spending quality time, quality over quantity, 100%. Don't aim to like you know, go on these lavish vacations or buy them all of mastermind or toys. Like it's not about that. They just want to feel connected to you five to 10 minutes a day, quality time uninterrupted. We are so distracted nowadays, put it away, disconnect, get on the floor, play with them, cuddle with them, read with them, connect with them. They need that regularly daily. That is huge. Okay. Number two, take care of yourself. If you're not taking care of yourself, you are not showing up as your best self for your child. Whether that means exercising, eating properly, going on date nights with your partner, going out with friends, hit the spa, retail therapy, like whatever does it for you, prioritize you. If you are not prioritizing you and your needs, you are going to be showing up irritable short fused and you know a lot comes from that we start to see resentment we start to see a lack of connection between your child it can just spiral into all kinds of different things so I mean it's not child directed but it's I think it's one of the biggest things that is overlooked as a parent especially as an as you become a new parent a first-time parent and you're so immersed in the you're you know you kind of everything flips in your life and everything starts to revolve around your kiddo just like you schedule in your work appointments in your meetings, if you have to get to the point where you're pulling out your calendar and scheduling in time for you, make it happen. Number three. So, the, I mean, there's so much, but connection. Um, I, I hate the word self-care, but, you know, taking care of you and trying to find a way to incorporate that into your day-to-day. Why do you hate the word self-care? Self-care because it sounds like something that is so, like – that it's like, to me, I think we should always be taking care of ourselves, and it shouldn't be like this one off of like a self care day or a self care moment. I think we as parents should constantly be striving more for integration, like integrating our self care into, you know, and balancing it out. Um, I think it's put on this pedestal of like, we always have to be seeking self care, where I, you know, I would rather find a way to integrate it more regularly. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you talk a lot about being a responsive parent, but it sounds like if you're a responsive human, you're being responsive to your own needs as well. And you're just a, a present mindful person, which then trickles down and translates to being a mindful, present, responsive parent. But if you're just that person, then yeah, you don't need to necessarily um, label it as this, this pedestal type thing, as you mentioned. So, okay. It makes sense. Okay. Number three. Number three is bringing, making your parenting practice mindful that's it right and and going out of your way whether it's reading a blog or listening to a podcast or connecting with experts there's so many good child development and parenting experts out there doing amazing work and learn learn parenting is not intuitive it's not an intuitive thing how to love your child and care for your child that's intuitive but how to parent your child It's not an intuitive thing. So don't think you have to do it on your own. Don't feel like a failure if you don't know how to do it. Don't feel like, you know, you've done something wrong if you need to reach out for help. Become mindful in your parenting so you are not falling into the reactive spectrum. Learn about your child's needs as they go through different ages and stages of development. Lean into, you know, your community, into experts, into, you know, if you're comfortable talking to friends that have kids your age or who've gone through it already. I mean, you know, one thing I love about my community and I, and I hear from so many parents that come into my program is that I love coming here because it's unbiased. I don't have to talk to a friend or my own parents or my sister and get their opinions because everyone has an opinion and everyone will pass judgment. Um, but there are opportunities out there to seek unbiased support where, you know, people can lift you up and make you feel so good about this. Um, just if you make that decision to be more mindful in your parenting versus just flying by the seat of your pants and hoping for the best, right? 
Corey, wonderful. For, for those parents that are that are seeking that unbiased support and maybe that help, what's the best way that they can reach out and find you? Absolutely. So I'm very active on Instagram at Corey underscore Stern. I also am always offering an opportunity to chat with parents for free. Parents can always book in a free 30-minute strategy call. Um, and it's www.coreystern.com forward slash booking. And we can share that. Um, and like, please connect. I'm so happy to talk with parents. And I, um, I'm always welcoming parents into the Empowered Parent Effect program. And I have some other programs that I'm running as well, um, specifically for parents who have kids starting kindergarten. I have a whole transition prep program for that. And then one of my areas of specialty is really helping parents who have kids struggling with eliminating behaviors around potty training, because that is that is a big one for a lot of families. Um, so I have a whole, it's called the elimination breakthrough method. And I support parents on teaching their kids how to um, work through those challenging moments, whether it's, you know, fear of sitting on the toilet or withholding anyway. So that's, that's very niche, but in general, for all the general parenting stuff, um, the doors to the empowered parent effect program are always open. And I'm so happy to connect with anyone to see if they, you know, if you feel like you need the support, let's chat and see if it's an appropriate fit and um you can always send me a message on social media i'm, I'm there often <laughs> Corey, you're you're a powerhouse of knowledge and, and a huge resource so i thank you for your time and for any of those parents that are seeking a little bit of guidance and help uh, Corey's a wonderful option so Corey, i want to thank you again for your time this was so great thanks so much for having me